Today on episode number 708 of the School of Podcasting, he's worked for NPR, he's worked for Audible, and he's the author of Make Noise, A Creator's Guide to Podcasting and Great Audio Storytelling. We have a really cool conversation. Get a pen and paper ready as we talk with Eric Newsom. Hit it, ladies! The School of Podcasting with Dave Jackson. Podcasting since 2005. I'm your award-winning Hall of Fame podcast coach, Dave Jackson, thanking you so much for tuning in. If you're new to the show, welcome aboard. This is why I help you start your podcast and grow your influence. If you go out to the website, it's schoolofpodcasting.com. Use the coupon code LISTENER, that's L-I-S-T-E-N-E-R, when you sign up for either a monthly or yearly program. And I do have something for free. If you go to schoolofpodcasting.com slash webinars, that's with an S, I'm doing a The Right Podcast Gear. So if any kind of, oh, I don't know what microphone or I don't know how to record interviews, anything technology related, I'm doing the ultimate presentation on and it's free. Why? Because I want you to start a podcast. I know podcasting can change your world, and I'm here to get you over the hump. A couple of episodes ago, I interviewed the CEO of Glow.fm, and I mentioned in the show that, hey, if I've ever given you any kind of value, if you could go to schoolofpodcasting.com slash glow, and I want to say thank you to the people that heard me talk about this again, and it was an experiment, and I got to tell you, Even now with more people doing that, and it doesn't matter what you contribute, anything, really anything, uh, I'm still up to 0.9%. And I did that as an exercise, as an experiment, and then I happened to be listening to Radiolab, and I said, you know, the reason I'm I'm being transparent here is there are people that think, oh, I can get 50% of my audience, and I'm like, "Uh, no, and you're not going to get 40, 30, 20, 10 If you're doing five, you're doing phenomenal. And then I listened to Radiolab and I heard this. Over the past year, more than 29,000 of you made a contribution to Radiolab, which is incredible. Thank you to all of you. You make our work possible. 29,000 people. I mean, Radiolab is so huge that in the last episode of The Good Place, a very popular TV show here in the United States, they threw this in. Relax, worry, war. Take a load off. Huh? Enjoy yourself. Do you know what I just discovered recently? Podcasts. Mm. There's like a billion of them, and they just keep coming. Mm. Now, Scoot, I got a new radio lab to listen to about how clams learn. Mm. <laughs> Pretty excited. And so that 29,000 people, you're like, holy cow. And then you hear this. But. Mathematically, of all, of the tens of millions of people who listen to Radio Lab, 29,000 is less than 1%. Less than 1% of our audience who listen actually give. So, number 1, remember, comparison is the thief of joy, and number 2, I share that to say, see, I'm not the only person that is going, wow, I I'm not even getting 1%. Because I want you to make informed decisions when you say things like, if we could get 50% of my audience to do this, and I'm like, "Mm, you might want to hold on there. And Radiolab is from a big studio, 
And today I'm interviewing Eric Newsom. Now, he's the author of the book, Make Noise, A Creator's Guide to Podcasting and Great Audio Storytelling. This book made me think. And Eric is behind some of NPR's most successful podcasts, including the TED Radio Hour, Invisibilia. Uh, I mean, I could go on and on. He is, and I told him this to his face, I go, Eric, man, you are an official big shot smarty pants. And that is a badge of honor here at the School of Podcasting. So Eric Newsom, thanks for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. One of the things I, I loved about this book, and I always tell people, if you can make me think, I will be your friend for life. And so what I want to start off with, you had a quote in your book where you said 40% of podcasts are abandoned within the first year. So why do you think that is? What's happening that people are coming out of the gate and running right into the wall? I think there's a couple of things happening, and I think it's just a matter of which degree you choose to to believe. There are some things that people abandon because they end. They end, let's say you're doing a four or six-part series, you've done four or six parts, and you're done, Right. There's lots of podcasts. I've heard podcasts that have one or two episodes, but that's all it was designed to have. It's done, and that's the end of it. So that's some percentage. You can argue how much of those, those that is. But there are, I would argue, a fairly large number of people who try podcasting and then end up quitting or giving up or getting frustrated or just feeling stuck. They either – it doesn't have the impact they want. It doesn't generate revenue like their expectations were. It doesn't kind of give them the feeling or it's too much that they want or it's too much work or these type of things. And it just, they just lose steam and go away. And I function under the, the belief because I see this happening and I see it happening with small groups of people or individuals or with big companies of a lot of it is just they start without taking this a small amount of time to answer some very basic ideas. And that, that doesn't mean that if they had considered these things that they would be a hit, but it does mean that they would stand a much higher likelihood of really be, taking the passion and excitement that drove them to start a podcast and see that maintain and, and grow and, and feel a sense of satisfaction from it. Yeah. What are those, when you say basic ideas, mm-hmm. what would some of those be? Oh, it's pretty simple. I I think that a lot of creators need to ask themselves, so who are you trying to talk to? If you are starting a podcast and that podcast is about candle making, right? There probably are. I've never looked that one up before, but there probably are podcasts about candle making. And are you making a podcast for someone who's been doing this for years and is really experienced and is trying to find new ways to make candles and so on and so forth as a real craftsman? Are you trying to create a podcast for the entry level person? And I think that that is, that's two very different podcasts, right? Absolutely. And people don't think that through of like, who am I trying to reach? And they don't ask themselves, what's my message? Like, what am I actually trying to say here? If you're trying to do a podcast about the future and you say, I think the future is scary and frightening and, and I'm worried about my way of life and the, the things I believe existing in the future. That's a very different podcast than someone who's very optimistic and excited for things. And, um, you know, let's say you make a podcast about electric cars. Do you think electric cars are the future or do you think they're 
a, a fancy and a fad and will go away. You know, it, those are very different podcasts. So what is your message as well? And then also, I think very few people spend the time to think about what they want out of it as far as impact. Like, why are you doing this? Are you trying to change someone's mind on a subject or make someone not feel alone who's had a certain type of experience? Are you trying to get someone to adopt a puppy or, or vote or what have you? And they don't spend a lot of time thinking about those type of questions. So who are you talking to? What's your message? What impact are you trying to have? And they, they, what they do instead is they think about, I'm going to have inter, I'm going to have an interview with architects about this architecture podcast. Well, that's very feature based. And I think that everybody always starts there with what the, what the kind of outline or feature of their idea is. And I think that those kind of form and format questions come after you've answered the things I just mentioned of, if you think about who you're trying to reach, what you're trying to say, and, and what you want, that kind of dictates to you what's the effective way to reach those people. Sometimes they're not going to have a lot of time. They want something short rather than something long. Yeah, they, they want conversations. They want to hear from experts rather than hearing stories from common people. You know, there's all sorts of considerations that actually become much easier to figure out when you've thought about why are you doing this outside of that it's fun. Of course it's fun. Right. It, it, you wouldn't be doing it if you did, if you weren't passionate about the subject and, right. and excited about the possibility of podcasting, you wouldn't be doing it. So, and so I think that asking some of those questions, and I'm like, this doesn't take days or weeks. It takes a, an hour to sit down and just really have a conversation either with your production partner, if you have one, or if you are doing it by yourself, kind of sit there and listening to these things out and really kind of thinking about what's driven you to this and what do you want out of it? Because then you get an understanding that success as a measurement is elastic and it, things can be successful that someone else wouldn't agree is successful. If you are a real estate agent trying to talk to other real estate agents in your town, and there are many podcasts that are literally that, and they spend a lot of time in their cars, you're measuring success in a couple dozen people, maybe a couple hundred people. If you're trying to create something like a tenant radio hour with 15 million downloads a month, it's a very different measure of success. But if you go into it and you haven't thought about audience and what success really feels like, how do you know if you're successful? How do you know if it was worth your time? I don't know. Well, you mentioned the TED hour, since we're kind of talking about format, you, you launched this awesome podcast, like just bazillions of downloads. You get done with season one and you go, yeah, we're going to change that. And when I read that, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> like, it's it's successful. I know. Let's tweak it. And I'm like, tell us a little bit like what, what it was and what you changed it to and then why. I got in a conversation with some people at TED. Um, a woman I worked with um, had worked with someone at TED and they said, boy, it would make sense for our two organizations to do something together. And so we had a meeting to discuss what NPR and Ted could do together. And the contribution I had is I kind of spit out an idea for Ted radio hour of, and the idea was at that point to take Ted talks and kind of expand them beyond the talk itself. 
that everybody knows the iconic TED talk, the 18 minute talk on a stage. Like, well, if someone's doing a TED talk about, let's say, urban design and planning, like, why are we hearing a conversation on a stage? Why don't we go out into the world, like into a city and have that person talk about what they're seeing? You have the sounds of the city and so on and so forth. And I pitched this idea and everybody kind of liked it. And we found a little, a little capacity to make that happen. And, and almost immediately we realized that my original idea was going to be really difficult to produce because all these TED speakers are located around the world. And if we're going to talk to someone, you know, if that urban planner is located in, you know, Sao Paulo, or, you know, we're gonna, are we going to go travel down to hang out with him for a couple of days and record? It's, it's kind of difficult. So we switched it around to being much more studio based and we had a great host. Her name was Allison Stewart. Um, we had a really good small crew that was producing this podcast and we, the first season came out. It was the new podcast of the year in uh, iTunes. It was downloaded millions of times. It was also a radio program. And I think over 250 radio stations ran it. Um, There's only 10 episodes of it. And everyone was like, what a hit, give us more. And it was exciting. And it was, I'd never had anything like that happen before. And I remember going out for like a celebratory drink with one of my TED colleagues and we like, you know, that was a little easy. Mm. It was too easy just to make it. And it didn't really kind of expand beyond the TED talk. Like we originally thought it just became a conversation about a TED talk. We're like, what if we took the idea of the TED talk and tried to link it with other TED talks that shared similar ideas around a theme and actually try to tell stories around that theme and use clips from the TED Talks and talk to the speakers, sometimes talk to people who aren't TED speakers, and just kind of like really kind of focus on like the future of robotics. There's lots of TED Talks around it. Some people love it. Some people are concerned about it. Like, let's tell a story with that. And so we spent about 10 months kind of retooling that, moved the production all down to D.C., which had previously been split between New York and where TED is and D.C. where where NPR is. And... Uh, got a different host um, because we were moving it all down to DC and kind of took this different approach. And everyone thought when we said we were taking a break to rethink this, thought we were nuts. Stations were yeah. besides themselves. The NPR stations were beside themselves. Like you've got a hit, give us more of the hit. And, you know, a lot of people who were like, you just watch the iTunes reviews that were coming in of like, what happened? Where is this thing? When is it more coming? Why aren't they saying anything? You know, people were getting impatient for it. And, and we said, no, 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 there's something we can do that's better. And I don't think anyone believed us. And we came out and it just showed that the success we had had earlier was not as successful as it could have been. I mean, it's been around for seven years now and gets downloaded 15 million times a month. And that's, that's pretty massive. There aren't that many other podcasts that can, can beat those kind of numbers. And we thought at the time it would last for two or three years and we would run out of material because there's only so many good TED Talks. And this just goes to show you that there's lots of interesting people in the world who do lots of interesting work and have lots of interesting ideas that it continues to to deliver really well. So it's... See, I loved it because it's it just... To me, I looked at that and like, there's the power of story. Because that's really one of the things you injected into it was you took this awesome topic and holy cow, I didn't know that about whatever the topic is. And now let's build a story around it. And it just, it's like steroids. And so I, I, to me, I love that uh, part of the book. Uh, Another thing you mentioned about just people getting burned out. 
is one of the phrases you said, you said, uh, uh, I'll just read it. The lack of thought on, on the points kind of that we're talking about now uh, leads creators to waste a lot of their time struggling to produce. And then this phrase, overestimating the audience potential and growth trajectory for their projects. And I was like, overestimating the audience potential. How do you estimate an audience potential in the first place? Well, like, how do you, how do you know? You know, um, research groups and companies charge lots and lots of money to answer this question pretty definitively, but they also there's something in, in audience research called personas, which is really kind of coming up with a personality, like a kind of an avatar mm-hmm. for a group. I've done that kind of work with, um, people sitting around a conference room in an hour, which has just as useful as what you pay someone forty, fifty thousand dollars to generate. And, and so when you're thinking about audience, I think you can spend the time to think about who the audience for this is. If you're trying to reach, I was sitting with a client the other day, they're really interested in reaching, reaching young women who are interested in wellness and mindfulness. Um, and by young men, women, their definition of that is like 28 to 35, right? So you can actually think about, okay, how many people are in that group? If you're dealing with a niche of like, I am interested in speaking to Star Wars fans. There's all sorts of things you can kind of look at and get a gauge. Like, how many people show up at these conventions? How many people are subscribing to newsletters? And you can find that information out, which sometimes you can. How many people are subscribed to Reddit forums on certain things, you know, certain topics too? And you, you kind of triangulate, like, look, there seems to be enough people that this seems like I can expect to reach a certain number of people. I find that, you know, very early in my podcast career, we were only interested, and I mean, up through pretty much the entire time I was at NPR, the goal was just, we want to create big tent shows. We want their, we measure audience in millions, and we want to make sure that we are creating things that are heard by a lot of people. And it wasn't until my audible years that I really kind of came to understand the principles of uh, audience being elastic too, of like your definition. You can make something very successful for a much smaller group of people if you kind of set your expectations accordingly. I mean, if you are trying to reach real estate agents and you decide to hire two full-time producers and a sound engineer, you're never going to make that work, right? It's, it's just going to be a, a, a money pit for you. Uh, that's, I don't think that's a realistic expectation. Nor if you are trying to podcast about uh, odd history in New Jersey, you're never going to reach millions of people. But that doesn't mean you can't be successful, right? Right. And speaking of success, the, the thing that when I started reading the book for me that I was like, oh, it's homework and it's hard. I love this. <laughs> you have a section where you talk about being able to describe your podcast in 10 words. Right. And then you then you had this big giant list of words that you can't, like I can't say beautiful or I think fantastic, fantastic. is one of them. Right, right. Uh, what, what are some other ones? Do you know? If- uh, yeah, unbelievable, uh, thought-provoking. Uh, I'm not sure if thought-provoking is on the list in the book, but it's definitely a candidate to go on the list. Yeah. Curious. Diverse is one of the more um, uh, that uh, well people you know sometimes that raises eyebrows when they find out that diverse is on the list of the words you can never use in a description. And it's not that I have anything against diversity; I just find it a really unsatisfying word to use. The thing these words all have in common is they don't describe anything very specific. Diverse can, for example, can mean a person of color, 
but it could also mean, but, but even in that description, what does that mean? I mean, are you talking about Asian Americans? Are you talking about African Americans? Are you talking about Africans? Are you talking about Puerto Ricans or people from Latin America or South America? It's like, what is your description of diverse? Diverse can mean people over a certain age or under a certain age. It can mean gender. It can mean sexual orientation. It can mean religious. It can mean ethnic backgrounds. Like, if you want, it, whenever you encounter these words, don't just say the word. Describe why that word exists. Instead of saying it's fantastic, describe why is it fantastic. Instead of it being beautiful, what makes it beautiful? And the the idea for that list came from, to me when I was reading a book about a guy who had basically wrote a memoir about his life while he was a Vanity Fair editor, which he failed colossally at. And he talks about Graydon Carter having this list of words that he never wanted to appear in Vanity Fair. And there was a whole bunch of words on there. Like his list has like zombie, but it's like a lot of like overused words. You know, you can't say that, oh, this is the zombie this or the zombie that. Right? Right. Like, and I'm like, radio words. I, I heard something on the radio that triggered me where I heard a bunch of different things to all described as beautiful. And so beautiful was the first word on my list. They described like four different things that had nothing in common at all as beautiful. And I'm like, what makes each of those things beautiful? It's not the same thing. Let's replace those words instead. And that becomes difficult in this 10-word description because there's two rules for the 10-word description. One is you can't use any of those empty modifiers. You have to replace it. And unfortunately, the replacement usually takes up more words. And the second thing is you have to be able to pass a sniff test of anyone in the room, um, who, if you're doing this in a group, or I do this in workshops, no one can name another podcast that could be de- described with that description. You have to be able to say, like, I, I am not having conversations about film. I am having, so conversations about film is three. That would be great if it's three words. I've actually uh, done one, which actually was three words. Uh, that's the shortest I've ever seen it. You could describe thousands of podcasts as conversations about film. It's like, what's unique about you? What's unique about the films you're talking about? And is it any sort of specific genre? Is it certain types of filmmakers? Those type of things. Like, get that kind of specific. And it doesn't hurt to think your audience as well. Like, it's conversations about film for new filmmakers, or is it conversations for fans, or is it conversations for people who are critics or, or really love criticism and think of it as an art form? And boiling it down so it's really like, what is its essence? And when we originally started doing this exercise, the task was you get in an elevator on the first floor. We did this at NPR in, a, in the old NPR building. We Our group was located on the fourth floor. So we said, you get in the elevator in the lobby and you go up to the fourth floor. If you get in the lobby with somebody who you haven't seen in a while and they said, what are you working on? You have from the lobby to the fourth floor to describe your project. And that became... People are like we're taking some pretty long elevator rides, <laughs> so we uh, then we then we made it ten seconds, and then we made it ten words. And the idea behind it was that when you saw someone in the elevator and you only had that small period of time, you should be able to describe your project to them in a way that when they got out of the elevator or you got out, they would actually understand what you were doing. The thing I loved about that exercise is first you start off with who is your audience. We talked mm-hmm. about that. You have a great example of going to Google Images and printing out people. I do it every every yeah, every week. We do that. Right. So I know who it is, 
and who I'm talking to. So that way I can say, well, is, is Robin going to like this? What about Steve? What about uh, Darren or whatever? Okay, this is going to be good. What that 10 word exercise does for me, it dictates what we're not about. It narrows the field of view. And it's like, look at light as a concept of when light is dispersed, it's not bright. When you focus light, it becomes much brighter. And these things do that, have that same effect. You mentioned the, the images, which is basically coming up with a picture of your listener. I was at this company and this group of people, there's five or six people. They all have, were stakeholders in deciding the, the company is going to do a podcast and what should that podcast be? And actually it was probably 10 people when you had all the like, the executives and everyone in the room and everybody did the exercise and everybody put up pictures of women. They were all women. Uh, they were all like in from 30 to 40, something, whatever. There was a lot of commonality, but one person came in with a picture of a 55 year old guy. Every other one, these young women right. doing all these interesting things with their life. <laughs> and this dude, and we had this conversation about, okay, why is this guy here? And yeah. it, it's interesting because it ended up surfacing that there was some one person in that group who didn't quite see the opportunity the same as the other group. And you can either identify that through an exercise like this, or you can all get in a room and fight and argue and not be as effective because you don't have that clarity of what you're not, yeah. of success looks like this person, it doesn't look like this person. In today's media world, that feels a little like you're excluding people. It's actually not. It's These are the people that it has to be right for. It can work for anybody, but it has to be right for these people. And then that then, by creating content for that person that is then designed to make them do whatever you want right. them to do, buy this, tell this, do whatever, uh, and then when I read that, I was like, that's really cool because you started off with, and it is, creating a good podcast is hard, but it's like, here's some really cool strategies, actionable steps that you can take to kind of uh, thin the herd on some of the the head banging against the wall kind of or stuff. Or avoid it, right. Um, I don't like banging my head against the wall. So everything in this has just been my efforts to try to not bang my head, right. And then the other thing I thought, well, I got to do what he says in the book and I, I love this question. He's like, when you have a guest sitting in front of you, you have to ask yourself, what is the one thing this person can answer that nobody else can? And I was like, oh, I was like literally standing alone in my office going, that is a good question. So I thought about it. I'm like, okay, what would your advice be to the indie person that does want to try to compete with the big folks, knowing that they've got bigger bats, they've got a bigger bullhorn? How do we build an independent empire? Well, I think that many people look at an NPR, an ESPN, or a New York Times, think I can't compete with that. And you know what? That's absolutely true. But that doesn't mean everything they're going to do is great, and it doesn't mean everything you're going to do is not great. I have seen people put atrocious amounts of money into projects that sucked and never did what they were hoping they would do. I have seen people with one person and a computer create something that millions of people end up listening to. I think that the reason I say this is don't confuse resources with potential for success. Don't confuse being someone who's had a long career in audio or in storytelling with success. I come to this from a very unusual perspective, and I've only come to really understand this perspective since the book came out. 
where a lot of times when I'm going to bookstores, I'm talking to people, I'm talking to people who are at the very beginning of their journey, whether they are, you know, I, I was spoke to a huge crowd in, in DC, which is great. But the, what made that crowd interesting to me was it was a lot of people who were thinking about getting into podcasting and a ton of veteran broadcasters who live in DC, work for big companies and were there because they're trying to figure this out too. And I, as a consultant, I go and I have conversations at literally some of the largest media companies in the world about things they want to do, things they need help with, and that they're asking me to help with. And then the next day I go to a book event and I'm talking to a bunch of people who are trying to make podcasts by themselves. And what nobody realizes is the conversations I have with both those groups are identical. I go into a major international news company and I listen to their concerns about how to succeed in podcasting. They are the exact same issues as the individual who's trying to figure out how to bust up and be more than just something at their kitchen table. It's shocking to me. And I think that uh, speaks to the moment we're in, in podcasting. I think it speaks to people have a lot of enthusiasm or excitement for the space and really aren't sure how to seize that. I mean, people with huge brands and hundreds and thousands of people at their disposal, and they still can't figure this out any better than somebody else who's doing this for the first time. And so I think that it's much more of an equalized place than people really feel that it is. So if that's true, how come it feels like you're putting out a podcast and you're not seeing the success that other people do or that your success never you plateau or you can go. I think that the equation for success for the New York times or NPR or ESPN to have for a podcast is the same as an individual. It's just at a different scale. And NPR grows things because they have certain levers they can push that are huge levers, which really aren't that different than an individual's. It's just the scale is smaller. And if you think that it's not that I have to have access to a network or I have to have somebody big do something, and you realize the tactics for success are identical, then that means they're replicable and you can continue to do them. And I like, for example, I even mentioned this in the book. There's a client I have who produces a podcast this really has a very, very niche appeal to it. And I like him quite a bit. I met him at a TED conference a couple of years ago, and he just does this for passion. He's not trying to make any money, but he was starting to get a loose his enthusiasm because his downloads had plateaued. He didn't know what to do. And he's a client, but I, I rarely charge him because I just like this guy and I want him to feel happy with his work. And I said, do this for six weeks. Just put in the first thing in your podcast episodes or six episodes that you're putting mine every couple of weeks, six episodes. First thing you say is, I need your help. If you love this podcast, can you tell one other person that you think will love this podcast? You can send out an email, you can tweet, you can post something in Reddit or social media or on a forum or whatever. Just there, you can help me by just telling one person. And after the six episodes, I checked in with a guy and I said, how's it going? He's like, something's wrong. I'm like what? <laughs> He's like, my, my, my downloads for every episode, which had been flat for months are up 35%. He's like, I don't understand what happened. I'm like, I understand what happened. You asked and they helped you. You said to people who love you, can you help me reach other people? And they did it because they love you. Or, you know, may not be love, maybe like, maybe appreciation, whatever. They did what you asked and it didn't cost you a dime. 
all you had to do was think it, you can't do that every week, but you can do it every couple, couple months. So you can do it a couple times a year and every time it will be successful. So you go from X to Y and then from Y to Z and so on and so forth. And that's how you build. And that's one of many tactics you can use. And I think it's just, and I'm going to interrupt here for a, uh, a, a little tangent. So he said, simply ask your audience to tell someone. I have that at the end of my show, every episode just about. But I was watching a documentary, and this is a 16-year-old Taylor Swift from the stage. Listen to what she does. You know, I've had a single out now for about a month. Yeah. There's this radio station called KZLA. I want each and every one of you to call them up and tell them you want to hear a song called Tim McGraw by this girl named Taylor Swift. Please. Yes, you always want to be polite when you ask your audience something. And notice what she did. She was very specific. Call this radio station, request this song by Taylor Swift. You know, request Tim McGraw by Taylor Swift, please. And like Eric says, we can't do that every single week, every single episode, but we can do that. And we know that some of our audience is going to do that because as he said, they love us, they like us, they trust us, and they want to see us win. Let's get back to Eric. On a content side, creators should always be focused on making their next episode better than their last one. That's pretty much what they need to do. And then on the audience side, that work never ends, just like the content improvement never ends. And it equally requires a little bit of effort to do a little bit more than you did last time. Doesn't mean more time. It definitely doesn't mean money. It just means activating a network, growing that network, helping others so they will in turn help you. And you you look at like a lot of the tactics that I put in the book for how to build audience. A lot of them were developed at NPR and are just as applicable to an individual podcaster as they are to NPR. It's just a matter of scale. You you mentioned, you put a chapter at the end about the history of podcasting. And you said, because it just feels right. right. And I got to tell you, if you want to learn about the history of podcasting, I'm going to tell everybody easy. This is the, to me, it's the definitive guide. How hard was it to get the definitive answers to who started what and when? You know, that's, that, that is um, uh, a real good question. And it was the, it was probably the chapter in the book that took the longest to write because I was actually being a journalist and was actually going and and asking questions and trying to figure things out and just kept pushing until I got answers. And that tenacity was kind of, was the only thing that sat in the way. So I'm like, uh, there was a conversation about the coining of the word podcasting was one of the things that there are multiple narratives around people believe certain things some of the people who are foundational in the history of podcasting have it wrong. And I would say, okay, you say it happened that this person, person A didn't do it. Person B did it. Show me, do you have any proof of that? Yeah, I do. And they would send me like a, a screenshot or a, a URL for a forum post that happened. And, and I looked at the date on it. Like that date is after this guy wrote this article. So you can't tell me that this is this other guy's the guy who did it because this when he suggested it was months later. So and if you read his post, it it seems like he knew that there this word had been thrown around. It was not something he was coining. 
it was originally all the history of podcasting and it just felt like it was a different book for those pages than it was the rest of it. And the publisher was really pushing me to take it out. And I said, no, I think it needs to stay in. I think it's important for people to understand where this came from. You can't be part of something's future unless you really understand it. And so we came up with this compromise and we also refer to it as a bonus episode or bonus chapter in the, in the <laughs> book. So it was kind of like we made fun of the fact that we didn't know where to put it. And, and the first indication that maybe it doesn't belong is we moved it around in the book like six different times as to where it was. <laughs> and so we figured, oh, let's make it a bonus. Well, for us podcast nerds, uh, I deeply appreciated that. You went from NPR to Audible and now you've started your own company, Magnificent Noise. Uh, you can find that at magnificentnoise.com. I guess biggest lesson starting your own company, any, any spooky insights or, you know, it's gotta be fun when somebody goes, Hey, um, I'm just going to start my own company, I guess. So yeah. any insights on that whole travels? Cause uh, you know, you're still doing great work. It's just not for somebody else. So it's gotta kind of be fun that, you know, you are now the man <laughs> Well, <laughs> along with your co-founder. Yeah. Yeah. My, my co-founder and I had worked together at, at NPR and then we worked together at audible. And as mm. the momentum continued to build the podcast space, we said to each other, look, we can working for somebody else. We get to do some things that we really love. We have to do some things that we really don't love. We work with people we really like, and we work with some people who really don't like instead of, uh, you see like there were so many people who were trying to take the momentum of the podcast boom and use that as a way to make money or to become famous or to make more money or more fame or what have you like maybe we can use this as an opportunity to do exactly what we want to do we can work for the size of group we want to do we can do the type of work we want to do and if we say no to all the vcs who come running out of the woodwork to give us money we can own that thing and it's ours and if it fails, it fails because of us. And if it succeeds, it succeeds because of us. But if we're going to spend so much of our waking time doing something, it should be what we want to do. And so we came up with a real vision of what we want a magnificent noise to be, which is not built to just grow uh, at this in, in fast clip scale of most startups. Um, we are growing very deliberately and very slowly. We only want to work for a certain type of clients. So we work in certain types of shows. So we just do those things. And, you know, and that's the way we're taking that pod podcast boom is to build that thing. And, you know, truth is we're not going to do it forever. We uh, would like to someday find a home where we can kind of relocate to perhaps someday. Um, but uh, for the foreseeable future, this is what we want to do. And um, it's really, really fun. I love going to work every day. Well, the book is called Make Noise, A Creator's Guide to Podcasting and Great Audio Storytelling. Eric, thank you so much. Number one, thank you for the book. I I'm, I'm telling you, you made me think, and, and there are times when I was like, ooh, that's a, that's going to be hard to do. And I, to me, I love to grow into goals. And I was like, Ooh, that's, I've got to come back and figure out how to explain the school of podcasting in 10 words. I haven't done it yet, but it's <laughs> like, I got to do it, but I really appreciate you taking the time. And, um, uh, uh, I, the other thing I'll, I'll throw in here at the end, how did you get the job at NPR? Just applied? No, I, uh, uh, had been working at a local radio station and worked on a lot of things that caught their eye. Sometimes 
they were really happy about what I did. And sometimes they were very unhappy uh, in my file cabinet. I still to this day have a cease and desist letter that I got from NPR before I was an employee there. Um, <laughs> they got a little upset at me for uh, doing something, which was completely unreasonable of them to get upset about. But the fun part being that, uh, you know, then like three years later, they said, do you want to come work with us? And I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> Excellent. So the, the key to getting a job at NPR is to get them to get so mad at you that they will send you a cease and desist. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you got their attention. Yeah, I did. You know, <laughs> put it, it put you on the radar, my friend. Mm. So awesome. Well, thanks again for your time. I, I deeply appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Again, the book is called Make Noise, A Creator's Guide to Podcasting and Great Audio Storytelling by Eric Newsome links in the show notes at schoolofpodcasting.com slash 708. I think some of my favorite takeaway, I love the whoever you're talking to, what is the one question that only they can answer? I love that strategy. And I love the fact that when you come up with a description for your show and somebody reads it, can they go, oh, that's that one show, right? And it's not yours. You need a new description. I love that. It's all about focusing in on what makes you different specifically. And uh, thank you, Eric, so much. The other thing I wanted to point out here, the other thing that I thought he was very honest about, and I, we've all known, uh, we can't compete with the big networks. But that doesn't mean that we can't be successful. And you're like, well, why can't we compete? Well, in case you haven't heard, let me play you another clip from Radiolab. Radiolab is a team of about 20 people, and uh, that includes, you know, reporters, producers, fact checkers, Robert, me. Some of the stuff that we do on this podcast is a lighter lift. Not to say it's easy by any means, but some of it is contained. You know, maybe it took a producer or two a few months to make. But most of the stuff that you hear on this feed took years to make, start to finish. Literally years. It takes so much time to do this kind of work. Okay, so honestly, making all of this stuff is as time and labor intensive as making a movie. There are dozens of interviews that go into it. Every fact has to be checked. Every breath is thought through. All of our music is originally composed. That is how ambitious Radiolab is trying to be. So let's talk about cost for a minute. When you add it all up, and I'm talking the reporting hours, the fact-checking, the digging through the archives, the getting people on planes, the equipment, all of it. For some of these bigger episodes, the cost can be sometimes north of a hundred grand for that one episode. It's crazy to say, but that is the truth. That is crazy. Holy cow. And so I just wanted to play that, but keep this in mind. Like Eric said, the conversations he's having with people that are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars per episode... I would love that for, for this episode, just one, just, just for the whole year. I'll do it whole year. A hundred. I'll take it. Holy cow. But it does go back to who are you talking to? Why are you doing your podcast? And then specifically, how are you going to be different? And how is your content going to inspire the who that you identified in step one? How is your content going to inspire them to do whatever it is that you define as success. And some of the things in this book will definitely help you figure out all of those steps. 
And of course, one of the reasons I like this book is this is the same stuff I teach at the School of Podcasting. And if you want to join, I would love to have you jump in. Go to schoolofpodcasting.com slash start. Sign up for either a monthly or yearly subscription. Use the coupon code LISTENER. That's L-I-S-T-E-N-E-R. And you can save on either a monthly or yearly subscription. And I guess the last thing I should ask is if you found any kind of value in this, could you do me a favor? It really helped me out. When somebody starts talking about podcasting, can you just say, you know who you need to listen to? Dave Jackson from the School of Podcasting. I would deeply appreciate it. And tell them to go to schoolofpodcasting.com. Hey, this is Doug from King's X. And if you like what you hear, go tell someone and may the groove be with you. Thank you, Doug. Hey, February 8th, not only is that my birthday, but I will be in more or less San Francisco. I'll be at Novato, California, speaking at the Bay Area Independent Publishers Association. And you don't need to be a Bay Area independent publisher to attend that, from what I understand. February 12th, I'll be in Los Angeles at Podcast Movement, working the Lipson booth, and I'll be speaking there. Then February 21st, I will be at the Spark Christian Podcast Conference. If you are a Christian, this is the first time this is happening. We want these things to succeed. In March, I will be at PodFest Multimedia Expo in Orlando. And then in June, I will be in Utah at the Utah Podcast Summit. There is one thing I should mention here. The next couple episodes might be a little shorter because I don't know if you just heard, I'm on tour basically for the next two weeks. I'm home for like four days before I go to Houston for the Spark Conference. But basically, I'm leaving the 8th and I'm on the West Coast for the better part of a week and a half. And uh, it's kind of hard to record your podcast when you're not here in the seat. Now, next week, I'm going to be interviewing Daniel J. Lewis from the Audacity to Podcast. We're going to be talking a little My Podcast Reviews. And uh, so we'll see what happens as it goes forward. I'm going to try to record a bunch in advance. I thank you so much. Don't forget about the question of the month for February. Go to schoolofpodcasting.com slash question. This month's question, how did you get over the nobody would listen to me mentality. What did you do? What did you finally say to yourself to go, that's it, I'm going to press record. I would love to hear from you. Don't forget to mention your podcast if you have one. For more information, schoolofpodcasting.com slash question. Thank you so much. Until next week when I'll be back with Daniel J. Lewis, take care, God bless, class is dismissed. Podcasting sense, we're peaking the levels again. You're just too crazy when you get on the mic. Podcasting, 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 podcasting.